You know, there are times in life when it feels like, like you're just hanging on for dear life. You know, you've got up high on this rope and you're just praying you don't fall. And it just feels like everything wants to bring you down. And you think about your life and it feels like it's just trying to get you to the end of your rope. You're hanging on, you're going, oh God, help. And then all of a sudden you get news that your job is cutting back and you're going, I'm gonna get fired. And all of a sudden you feel like you're just lowering down to the bottom of your rope. And then you're going, God, I I can't hold on. And and then you get news that your marriage is in trouble. You don't know what's going on. And oh my goodness, I'm I'm getting to the end. I'm not gonna make it. And and then you hear about your kid who's being bullied at school and, and you're at the bottom and you're going, oh. Lord, I can't, I can't hold on. Someone you know gets COVID, they're sick, and you're going, oh, God, help, oh, God, help. And you're hanging on for dear life, and you know there's coming a moment you got to let go. And the moment you let go, you realize you're right there on solid ground. Now, I I think so often this is a picture of what it looks like before God. You see, God knows that we have to be at the end of our rope because we're way up there, and we're trying to hold on, we will let go because we cannot hold on to our lives forever. We are gonna let go and the fall will kill us. But God knows if he could just pull us down until we get to the end of our rope, then when we let go and we will let go, we'll see we're not that far from solid ground. We'll find our footing on the Lord Jesus Christ. And I hope that you understand this truth for yourself. And I want you to know it's not just true for you It's true for the people of God everywhere. There is a nation called Israel, and we're going to hear a little bit of the history of Israel today, and we're going to learn about how they too had to struggle through this. You're going to see it in the book of Amos chapter 9. So I want you to go ahead and grab your Bible, pick it up, and turn to Amos chapter 9. And in Amos chapter 9, you're going to see a story about, guys, thank you so much for getting this ready for me, a story of about how God met with the nation of Israel and how as he was meeting with the nation of Israel, he taught them this incredible principle that they have to get to the end of their rope if they're ever going to be able to let go and find their sure footing in God. And you're going to see that God has to go through supreme measures to get them to the end of their rope. It was not an easy journey. But God didn't do it because he was mean or cruel. And by the way, the same thing is true in your life. When God gets you to the end of your rope, it is not because he's mean or cruel and wants to hurt you. It's because he knows that it's what's best for you. And you're going to see in the nation of Israel, there were parts about God's wrath and discipline that were hard. He was getting them to the end of themselves because it is the end of ourself where we, begin, we find the beginning of God. And God always works in us when we stop trying to work for ourselves. And you see the nation of Israel was brought to an end, but it was so that God could move among them. So Amos chapter 9, we're going to finish up in this sermon series. This is the last Sunday where we've been going through back since June, chapter by chapter, verse by verse through the book of Amos. And in nine, you're going to see what kind of seems a a little bit, honestly, extreme for Amos, where he starts with severe condemnation, but he's going to turn around and show it was just so he could save them. But when he says he's going to bring an end to the nation of Israel, God doesn't mess around. Look at verses one through four. Listen to what it says. He says, I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, strike the capitals until the threshold shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my side at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. What you're reading right here is what it looks like when God determines he's going to bring an end to somebody. 
And he was bringing an end to the nation of Israel. This is the end of their rope. It says back in verse 1 they, that, that Amos had a vision of God standing beside the altar. Now, the altar that he's referring to isn't the altar in Jerusalem. Almost every scholar, as they study this, believe it's the altar in the temple of Bethel. Got to give you a little history so you know what's going on. If you've been tracking in the sermon series, you might remember this. But at the time, Amos, he was from the southern region of Judah. So the nation had divided between 10 tribes to the north, that became the nation of Israel, and two tribes to the south, became the nation of Judah. Amos was from Judah, but he had gone to prophesy against the nation of Israel to the north. Now, if you remember the history, whenever the nation of Israel was founded, Jeroboam was the first king, he knew that it would be dangerous for the people of Israel to go back down into Judah where Jerusalem was. They might defect, they might go back to the rightful lineage of David, and they might move back to the land of Judah. So he determined to set up false places of worship, and one of those places was in the city of Bethel. Bethel was not far from Jerusalem. And he told them, this is your new temple. This is your new altar. And he, he built a golden calf, set it up there and says, this is your God. Come worship him. It was a false place of worship. But they went there and that's where they worshiped. And this is the first time God showed up at the altar. God did not go to that because he told them the place of worship is in Jerusalem in the holy temple. And so he did not ever go to Bethel. His presence wasn't there except this one time. But this time when he showed up in Bethel, it was not to bless the people, it was to crush the people. He, he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. What he's referring to is in the temple in Bethel, there were these capitals. They, they were things that held up the roof. So when you strike the capitals, the roof would collapse and kill all the people who were in there worshiping, worshiping the golden calf, the false idol. God was saying, I'm gonna make an end of all these false worshipers. But he goes on even more than that, not just the people in the temple. He says, anybody who tries to run away, anybody who tries to flee, all those who've chosen to worship falsely, I'm going to come after them and I'm going to make an end of them. He's saying, I'm going to hunt them down and it will be over. And I went into the way he talks about it. It is complete. He uses four things here to show the, the entirety of the, the hunt that God is going to have. There is not a place you can go in all the spiritual world or all the physical world to escape God. Starts off in verse two, he says, if they dig down into Sheol, Sheol was the spiritual place of the dead. He says, even if they go down there, I'm gonna hunt them down and I'll get them. He says, if they climb all the way up to heaven, that was the spiritual highest point. He says, you will not get away from me. I will find them and bring them down. You can go as high as you want or as low as you want in the spiritual realm. You will not get away from me. Then he moves on in verse three and he says, if they go to the top of Carmel, Mount Carmel was the highest point in the land of Israel. So in the earthly realm, he says, go as high as you want. You will not escape me. I will get you. And then he says, if they go down to the bottom of the sea, that's the lowest point on the earth, he says, I will still go find them and I will bite them with a serpent. In other words, you can go as high as you want, as low as you want, the spiritual world or the physical world, you will not get away. He's saying, you can run, but you can't hide. Amos is talking about the omnipresence of God. Now listen, if you study your Bible, what you will realize is that the omnipresence of God is a beautiful thing or a terrifying thing, depending on whether you are for God or against God. In fact, there's an incredibly similar passage to this where it talks about the exact same four zones from King David. But I want you to hear the difference in tone because you're gonna see that David receives it as a beautiful thing that God is omnipresent. Save your space in Amos 9. And I wanna flip over to Psalm 139. I wanna read verses seven through 10. Listen to how King David talks about the omnipresence of God. And listen to the same four words he uses. Verse seven of Psalm 139, he says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? 
If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. There's the whole spiritual realm, high and low. Verse 9, if I take the wings of the morning, in other words, go to the highest place, and if I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, in other words, the lowest place, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. Here's King David saying, if I go to heaven or Sheol, if I go to the highest point or the lowest point in the sea, you will be there to hold me and to guide me. For King David, the omnipresence of God was a beautiful thing. You flip back to Amos chapter 9, the omnipresence of God is terrifying because he is saying, there ain't nowhere you can go where I won't find you. It's over. He's bringing an end to them. The omnipresence of God, if you are against him, is a terrifying thing. But not just the omnipresence of God. Also, the omnipotence of God is terrifying if you are fighting against him. And this is why Amos in verses 5 through 6 of chapter 9 moves on from omnipresence to talk about the omnipotence, the all-powerful nature of God. Look at verses 5 and 6 and just see this hymn that he speaks. He says, The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt, who builds up his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. This right here is known as a majestic hymn of Yahweh God, where it talks about his power. He says, all God has to do is touch the earth and it melts. He can build his chambers up in the heavens himself. He can tell the water what to do and it obeys him. He is in full and total control. This is talking about the power of God. It makes me think of Genesis chapter one, if you've ever read that, when God created it says that God just spoke and the mountains formed and the seas came together. God just spoke it and the stars in the expanse of the heavens came up trillions of light years away and they come out because God just speaks. That's the power of our God. He is omnipotent. He is in full control. And listen, if you are for God, that is great news. But if you are against God, that is terrifying news. And what Amos is saying to Israel is you have found yourself fighting against Almighty God and it is terrifying to fall into the hands of an omnipotent, omnipresent God who will get you and you cannot escape. And what really got to Israel is that they actually thought God would never fight against them. They thought they were safe because God would always be on their side. They thought they were the special chosen people of God and therefore God would not come against them. That's why in verses seven through 10, he goes on to remind them that their position before God does not make them protected that God still will come against them when they sin against them. Look at verses seven through 10. Listen to what it says. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kerr? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Now that last line right there, it shows you the problem of the nation of Israel. They thought they were indestructible. They said disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. Now the reason they said that is because they knew they were a strong nation. If you remember from the beginning of the sermon series, I explained this was a time of great prosperity for the nation of Israel. They had a strong army. They had a lot of affluence. They were living at high and, and living at large in this moment. And they thought it's because they were the people of God, the chosen race. And they thought, therefore, God would never bring disaster upon them. 
And what they didn't realize is that precisely because they were chosen and selected, God would punish them for their evil. If you were to go back to chapter three, verse two, you would hear this very thing. Amos has already told them that God said, you alone, Israel, have I known among all the nations. Therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities. Because they had a special relationship with God, God was gonna punish them whenever they didn't live up to that expectation. And this is what he's trying to say to Israel here over again. Don't think disaster won't come on you. Don't think you're better than anybody else. That's why he came up with the Cushites and the Philistines and the Syrians back in verse seven. Verse seven, he starts off, are you not like the Cushites to me? This was a dig on the Israelites because they thought they were so much better than the Cushites. Now, I, I know you have no clue who the Cushites are. Those are what we, modern day would be the Ethiopians. Now, what you have to understand about Israel at this time is there was a lot of racism and hatred toward other people. And they looked at the Cushites and they saw their dark skin and they saw their different culture and they heard their different language and they looked down on those people and thought Israel thought they were better than those Cushites. And God says, can you get over yourself? You are no better than any other person on this planet. Just because you're my chosen people does not make you better. And then he moves on to say something absolutely profound. Something, by the way, I had never learned or heard of before in all my times of reading the scriptures. We learn that the exodus that happened to Israel was not unique to Israel. That in fact, the Philistines and the Syrians had had an exodus from Yahweh God. So it was, it was at in verse seven, he says, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt? Now he's talking about the exodus. Go back to the book of Exodus, second book in the Old Testament. In this, many of you know the story of Moses when he rescued them from the land of Egypt and brought them through the Red Sea on dry ground and saved them, delivered them. That whole delivery was called the Exodus. And the Israelites thought they were a special people because God had done that to them. And here it's saying, guys, God did the exact same thing from the Philistines. The Philistines were slaves in the land of Kaftor and God brought an exodus and rescued them. And God did the same thing for the Syrians. They were captors in the land of Kerr, slaves, and God rescued them. In other words, there was an exodus for them too. But God saw the sin of the Philistines and God saw the sin of the Syrians and he punished them. And Israel knew the history of the Philistines and the Syrians. And so God looks back at them and says, do you really think that you're better than these people that you hate so much? You can see the sin of the Philistines and you think they're bad. You can see the sin of the Syrians and you think they're bad and you can't see the sin in yourself. If I didn't spare them, I'm not gonna spare you either, Israel. Amos was bringing a hard message to them, saying the end has come. There is no more rope for you to hold on to. It's over and there's nothing you can do to stop it. Now, I wanna, I wanna stop here just for a moment. Because I know there are some of you watching this right now and, and maybe one of the reasons why you're watching it digitally and virtually is because you're not ready to step into a church and one of the main reasons you're not ready to step into a church is because you just, you hate all the hellfire and brimstone preaching that you, you think happens in churches and you're hearing my sermon right now and you're going, see, this is why I don't go to church. All these preachers talk about is sin and God's judgment and discipline and wrath and on, on and on it goes and I thought God was a God of love, but this seems like a God of hate, and I don't want a God like that. Listen, if that's, if that's what you're hearing, that's what you're feeling, I, I can totally understand why. But I, I want to say two things that I think will be really meaningful for you. The first thing I want to say is, there is something worse than a God who punishes, and it's a wishy-washy God who doesn't punish sin. Let me explain what I mean. So I think you get this concept on earth. If there was a judge, and he was handling a sentence, 
And, and let's just say that your nephew, maybe you had a nephew who's a child was murdered by somebody and the murderer was put on trial and all the evidence was there showing that the guy had killed your nephew. And the, the time came for a verdict and the jury said he's guilty. And then the judge says, well, you know what, man? I just, I don't know. I feel so bad for the, the murderer and I don't know. Maybe I should just let him off with a warning. So God, listen, don't sin again. Off you go, you're free. I guarantee you, if that was your nephew that had been murdered and you saw that judge let that guy go free, you would not be okay. You would scream for justice to happen because you want a judge who does what's right, not a wishy-washy judge that just sweeps it under the rug. It's no different with our almighty God. He would not be fair and right and just if he saw sin and just swept it under the rug and acted like it didn't happen. What's worse than a God who punishes is a God who sees sin and does nothing about it. We want a God of justice. But there's a second reason why. It is not so severe to have a God who punishes and disciplines. And the second reason is, God never punishes and disciplines out of hate. He always does it out of love. If you read your Bible, what you'll see over and over and over again, that God always has a, a purpose for punishment, and that purpose is redemption. God's larger picture is always salvation and redemption. You go all the way back to the beginning, the book of, of Genesis. It talks about the flood and there's Noah. And it, the, the judgment was God wiping out the majority of humanity. And there's a side where you can go, man, that's a mean God. Or you can realize the whole reason he does it is to save Noah and his family, to save a remnant, to save the righteous so they can thrive. God's purpose for judgment is to save the righteous, even if that's a few. You look at, at later on in the story, of the people of God, and you see this again, and you see with Abraham, and you got Lot, and Sodom, and Gomorrah, and, and Abraham intercedes on behalf of righteous Lot that he too would be saved, and God moves for destruction so that he can save Lot. You keep moving on to, to kings and chronicles and the story over and over and over again. You see judgment, and when they move into the promised land, you wonder why in the world does God command the destruction of these enemy nations, and you realize it's not because he's hate-filled. It's because he's trying to protect his people He's trying to protect the righteous people so that the world can know the goodness of God. Then you flip over to the New Testament and you hear the story of Jesus. And you hear that the Father would put all the wrath of mankind upon his own son and have his own son murdered brutally. And you go, what kind of God is that? It's the kind of God that loves us and knows that he has to do this to his son so that you and I, the remnant, might be saved his purpose for condemning his son and putting his son under wrath was not punishment, but it was salvation and redemption. The whole storyline of the Bible is God over and over and over using punishment and discipline to snap humanity back into its senses to turn to him so that he can save. It was always about the remnant. In fact, you got a little glimpse of that back in verse eight. Maybe you missed it. Look back at verse eight and read it again with me. It said, behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, talking about Israel, and I will destroy it from the surface of the, of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. He says, I'm going to destroy the nation of Israel, but not completely. There's a remnant that I'm going to protect. And I'm trying to take Israel to the end of its rope so that remnant, when they let go, and they will let go, they'll find their footing upon me, the rock. And that's why in verses 11 through 15, you're about to see an utterly different tone from Amos. We have had eight and a half chapters 
of hellfire and brimstone coming against the nation of Israel with all this condemnation. But just listen to how the book ends. Because it is so radically different. Verse 11 says, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. That they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the trader of grapes, him who sows the seed. And the mountains shall drip with sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel and they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land and they shall never again be uprooted out of the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. He says there's coming a moment. The days are coming when I'll make all things right and everything will be beautiful and I'll do this for you, forsaken Israel. This is such an incredibly different tone. In fact, the, there are many scholars who when they read verses 11 through 15, they go, there is no way that was written by that dude Amos. It's just too different. So they, they make assumptions that, well, this must have been written sometime later, like Amos ends in verse 10 with hellfire and brimstone, and then somebody later goes, well, that's too rugged of an ending, so they insert verses 11 through 15 to make it end a little lighter. And they say it wasn't really Amos who wrote that. I don't buy that. Let me tell you why I don't buy it. Because Amos had already put a seed of this earlier in the book. In fact, if you were to go back to chapter 5, verses 14 and 15, you're going to see just a little bit of seed in there to germinate into verses 11 through 15 of chapter 9. Read them with me. Chapter 5, verses 14, 15. He says, Seek good and not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. There you have it, the mention of the remnant. He says, guys, seek good and not evil. Listen, if it was over, if there was no hope for Israel, he never would have said, seek good and not evil that you may live. This whole book is a message not of death, but of life. Him saying, guys, wake up, you're killing yourselves. Stop holding on to the rope. Stop trying to save yourself. Get to the end of your rope and let go that you may live. There's a remnant that I want to save. And all this message of condemnation was just to get them to realize there's something so much better. This is the message of Amos. He's speaking to you and to me. He's saying, guys, there's something so much better than what you're experiencing right now. In fact, if you read verses 13 and 14, you realize he's talking about a brand new Garden of Eden. If you know the storyline of the Bible, it begins with the Garden of Eden. Sin comes in, they get kicked out. You go all the way to the end of the book of Revelation. It ends back in the Garden of Eden where everything is restored and everything is right. And the whole message of the Bible is going from the Garden of Eden back to the Garden of Eden. And what you see in verses 13 and 14 is a picture of the garden. There were two things amazing about the Garden of Eden. One, everything grew there and there was no hard labor. And two, God's presence was in the Garden of Eden. And you see both of those being restored. The very first one, you see that everything grew in this place he's talking about in verses 13 and 14. He says, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. Maybe it's a little confusing. I'll make it really simple. He's basically saying that the harvest is going to be so abundant, it just won't stop. Now, typically, the plowman, if he was getting wheat ready, would do that in October and November. He would plow up the soil. He would put the seed in there. And then all during the wintertime, that seed would just sit there and it would wait. 
And then when it warmed up in the springtime, it would begin to germinate. It would sprout and start to grow until about April and May, it would reach the full harvest. And then they would, they would reap it all. They would bring in the harvest of wheat and then they would wait. And the land would lay that way until it got back till October, November. And then they would replow it and go for the next year. But what he's saying is that the wheat would produce not just in April and May, but in June, July, August, September, October, November, it's still producing wheat to the point that the plowman is trying to work while they're still bringing in the harvest. It's just going to grow so abundantly it won't stop. And, and that was his point, by the way, of the grapes. He says the treader of the grapes will, will still be there when the dude's sowing seed. So if you know anything about grapes, when you pull out grapes, you have to crush them so that the grape juice can come out in order to make wine or grape juice. And he's saying that when the harvest time comes, which is usually about August, September, you'd bring the grapes and start treading on them. They're not going to stop. They're going to keep on producing in August, September, October, November, all the way to December. That was the time you were supposed to sow new seeds. And he's going to say, you're going to try to sow, but people are still going to be bringing in the harvest because it just won't stop. It's going to get to the point that the mountains you're going to drip with, they're going to run down. There's going to be grape juice flowing down the hills of the mountains in Israel. The Garden of Eden will be restored one day. But what makes this promise so beautiful isn't just that they're going to have sweet wine and fruit to eat. It's not just that the land is going to produce well. Now, the second thing about this, what I mentioned earlier, that God's presence would be among this God-forsaken place. That's actually what he was getting back at in verse 11 when he said, In that day I will raise up the booth of David that is fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. And when it talks about the booth of David that has fallen, he's referring to that word booth means tent, the tent of David, the lineage of David, the line of David. It's referring to what I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, that division between the nation of Israel to the north and Judah to the south. Under King David, he brought all 12 tribes together and they became one strong nation, but it only lasted for two generations. By the time his grandson came, Rehoboam, wrecked the nation, the 10 tribes became Israel to the north, two tribes became Judah to the south, and the booth of David, the tent of David, had fallen over Israel to the north. And it wrecked them spiritually because God's presence wasn't with them. God dwelt in Jerusalem, in the holy temple down in Judah. God was no longer with the people of Israel. His presence left them, as well we mentioned last week in the sermon. And here they are, God forsaken, with this broken, fallen tent of David. And they have no means of being restored. Spiritually, they are in ruins, and their spiritual wall is broken. And they have no hope. And it actually gets worse for the nation of Israel. I've mentioned this multiple times, but in the year 722, the nation of Assyria comes just as Amos had predicted and obliterates the entire nation. The 10 tribes of the north, they're gone, they're destroyed, the walls of Samaria are torn down, all the people, the majority of the people are exiled from the land, taken out in shame and brokenness. But there's something you may not know that happened. Assyria was a really powerful nation for a reason. They were, they were smart, they were shrewd. And they knew that if they wanted to make sure Israel never rose to power again, then they didn't just remove and exile the leaders of the nation. They would bring in foreigners and they forced the remaining Israelites to intermarry with all these foreigners. So they would become a mixed race people and no longer have national identity. And so the nation of Israel became a mixed race with a whole bunch of other nations and they became known as the Samaritans because they lived in the, the land of Samaria. 
And the Jewish people to the south began to look at the Samaritans as utterly God-forsaken. Not only had they abandoned the holy temple, now they didn't even have the bloodline any longer. Now they were a mixed race. They were broken people. They didn't have the purity of the lineage. They didn't have King David. They were God-forsaken entirely. And so you have the Samaritans dwelling in this land, feeling like the land is broken, their spirits are broken, and God is nowhere to be found. Until 750 years later, there is someone from the lineage of David who walks through the land of Samaria and he walks up to a Samaritan woman of all places and he shares with her some remarkable news. I want to finish by jumping over to the Gospel of John chapter 4. It's a story about Jesus as he's passing through the land of Samaria, this God-forsaken place with these Samaritan people that the Jews hate. And he walks up to this woman, and this woman feels God-forsaken. She's at the end of her rope. She's walking in adultery, had multiple relationships. She's shunned by her people. She has to go draw water in the middle of the day because no one else wants her to be around in the cool of the morning. And here she is trying to draw water in the middle of the day, and Jesus walks up to her and asks for water. And the woman says, what are you doing talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. Jewish men don't talk to Samaritan women. And Jesus says, I got something incredible for you. I got living water that if you drink from, you will never thirst again. And this woman says, well, how do I have it? And Jesus says, well, go ahead and bring your husband. And she realizes she's trapped. She says, I don't have a husband. He says, you're right. I know about all your adultery. I know about all your problems and all your shame and all your guilt. And this woman recognizes she's in the middle of a conversation with a prophet. And I want you to listen to what she says. John chapter four, verse 19. It says, the woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father because you worship what you do not know, but we worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. And the woman said to him, Well, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. He'll save us. And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am him. I am the one you've been waiting for. You've been destitute. You've been waiting for the booth of David to be restored from its brokenness. And I am the one who comes from the lineage of David. I am the Messiah and the Father is seeking you because he wants you. You are no longer God forsaken. I'm inviting you into the house. And this woman is overwhelmed that finally it has come to the Samaritans, these God-forsaken people. And she goes back to her town and she tells all the people about us, come, I found the prophet, the one who's to save us. And the whole town comes out to meet this guy, Jesus, to see who he is. And, and I want you to see how the presence of God falls upon these God-forsaken people. Look at verses 39 to 42. Listen to what it says. It says, many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. And they said to the woman, I love this, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and we know that this indeed is the Savior of the world. This is the Messiah, the one who's come to save us. 
We've seen God's presence and Eden has come to us. This is what it looks like for God to redeem. Listen, all that God did in the nation of Israel to punish them, to to correct them, wasn't because he hated them. It wasn't because he was angry. It was because he had a plan of redemption, but he had to get these Jewish people to the end of themselves, to the end of their rope when they knew they were broken, when they knew they couldn't save themselves. He had to take them down to the bottom so that when they released the rope, they could see the Savior of the world who would catch them on firm footing. And the same message God has for that Samaritan woman he has for you. Listen, I don't know what your life's been like. I know there are many of you watching this and you've had a lot of hardship. Let me tell you, God does not waste any hard moment in our lives. He always has a purpose. He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose, including our hardest moments. And there are times when we're at the top of that rope clinging on and God is saying, no, I gotta get you to the end of your rope Because until you get to the end of yourself, you're never going to see the beginning of me. And he's just waiting for us to stop fighting and to let go and to trust. And I wonder, are you willing? I heard a story about about a moment at a swimming pool where there was a, a child who was in the middle of the swimming pool and this child, it looked like, was drowning And there was a gentleman who was watching this take place and and he saw the child in the water and the child obviously couldn't swim and the child was kicking and screaming and flailing around. But he noticed there was a lifeguard right there. So okay, well the lifeguard's gonna come in there and, and save the kid. But as he's watching and he's hearing this child scream and flail around, he notices that the lifeguard is staring at the child, but he's not doing anything. And so the man sees it and he starts screaming, hey, hey, guy, look, the child, you see the child, he's suffering, get him, save him. And the lifeguard doesn't even look at the man. He's looking at the child, watching him flail around and kick and scream, but he's doing nothing. He's just waiting and waiting and waiting. And finally, this man seeing this going, man, this, the lifeguard's not going to do anything. What's going on? So he, he runs over, and he's going to try to do something to push the lifeguard or save the kid or do something. But by the time he gets there, he notices he, he, he's too late. The child is, is exhausted and he's begun to sink. But right when that child was starting to sink, that's when the lifeguard dove in, picked him up, dragged him off and pulled him out of the water. And that guy was livid. He's like, what are you doing? You get paid to watch that. I saw you look at that child. Why did you wait so long to save him? And the lifeguard, he didn't get angry. He just told the guy, listen, I've been at this job long enough. I know what would happen if I jumped in there when that kid is kicking and flailing around that he would kick me and punch me and pull me down and we were both gonna die. I had to wait for that kid to stop fighting before I could get in there and save him. And I think that's exactly what God is saying to you. There are some of you right now and you are kicking and screaming and flailing around and you are trying so hard to save yourself, so hard not to drown. You are clinging onto that rope and he's saying, would you just stop fighting? I'm just waiting to save you when you give up your fight. Listen, guys, there has to come a moment in our lives where we raise raise our white flag and surrender to Almighty God and we say, God, I can't save myself. I'm at the end when we let go and we trust in God, are you at that point? Are you finally at the end of your rope? Wave after wave of hardship. Maybe you've been angry at God and God is saying, don't be angry with me any longer. Look, I'm, I'm in this for you because I love you and I want you. And he's saying, would you trust me? Would you let me save you? Look, if that's you, I want you to know today can be the day of your salvation. Word of God tells us very clearly that he sent his son Jesus to save us and that when we go through hardship, 
God is not being mean or cruel any more than he was being mean or cruel to his son when he asked him to go to the cross. He just knew that was the pathway of redemption. And in your life, he's breaking you, not to harm you, but to save you. Would you be willing to trust him? So the word of God tells us that to trust in Jesus Christ is, doesn't just mean we go, all right, I'm sorry, I've done bad, save me. No, no, we gotta publicly declare, Jesus, I need you, save me. There's a way we do that. It's called baptism. Baptism is the act by which we show the old me needs to die. I need to let go of the rope and God, you're gonna raise up a brand new me. That is our testimony. God, I'm ready for you to take in my life. I trust you. I believe there are some of you watching this and you need to take that step of faith. Listen, we have a baptism celebration in just a little over a month. We're gonna go to our annual church-wide baptism celebration at Lake Viridian in Arlington. And I don't know where you live, where you're watching this, but there may be some of you who live in the city, the DFW area that need to come be a part of it. There may be some of you need to drive into town to be a part of this in about a month. The most important thing is, are you ready to see the power of God? If you are, all I ask is that you let us know. It's very easy. You can just text the word next step to 94253. Right there, as you see on your screen, or you can go to fuller.org slash next step. And you let us know that you're ready. You're saying, I'm, I'm letting go of my rope. I realize now what God has been doing. He hadn't been against me. He's been trying to save me. I'm ready to stop fighting. I'm ready to stop kicking and screaming and trying to save myself. Jesus, I'm ready for you to save me. And I'm ready to show the world, I choose you, Jesus. If that's you, you let us know. A pastor will reach out to you within 24 hours because we want you to know that God is ready to meet you and transform you. So take a moment to do so. In a moment, we're going to sing a song that talks about the living hope we have in Almighty God. And when that song is over, we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Before we do, though, I want to talk to you, Christian, you believer. There are some of you right now, and you're angry with God because you've been going through a lot of hardship. You trust in Jesus, but you don't understand why that sickness is happening, why that, that financial crisis is happening, why that relationship is deteriorating, why that issue is going on in your life. You don't understand why. And you have to choose today by faith to say, God, I know you're not a mean, cruel God. And I know you do all things for a purpose. So God, I'm going to trust you. And the best way to show your trust in God is to bring your request before God in prayer. And so maybe during this next song, instead of singing, you need to get on your face and bow down and present your prayer before God. Or better yet, maybe you need to let one of us pastors know so we can join you and pray for you. Very easy way to do that. You can text the word prayer to 94253 like you see on your screen. And what will happen is you're going to let us know your prayer request and we're going to pray for you by name and we're going to text you back and tell you that we prayed for you. But this is a sign for you to know, God, I'm choosing to trust you. It's an act of faith to say, God, I'm not going to fight against you. I'm going to let go of the rope and put my feet on you and trust in you. I'm going to put my living hope in you. So if you need to do that during this next song, it's the time to respond. You respond as the Lord tells you.